following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. When I was in Costa Rica last week, and thanks, by the way, to Tom and to Lynn for preaching in the last two Sundays, I was looking ahead to the notes, and I'm like, oh, it looks like we're doing this passage. So I prepped for all of it. And then toward the end of this week, I was thinking, you know, I really should give context to the paragraph we're doing because I talk a lot about the importance of context. And so I looked, and it turns out I skipped a whole bunch. I don't know how that happened. But it was too late to go back and prepare the right sermon, so we're doing this one. And so if you notice a chunk of Second Peter we've skipped, we're going to come back to it later. It's just going to be out of order. But I'll give you a little bit of the background of the skipped part to get us into where we're going today. So the last sermon I preached was Paul's warning about false teachers and false prophets. When we get to the section today, he's warning about mockers and scoffers. It seems to have been a problem in the church to which he was writing. There's a lot of people coming in and just saying really unhelpful things. So chapter 3, verse 3, above all, be sure to remember that in the last days, mockers will come, following their own desires and taunting you, saying, so what happened to the promised second coming of Jesus? Everything keeps going just the way it has since our ancestors fell asleep in death. Since the beginning of creation, nothing's changed. So then Peter notes that God had warned that a day of judgment was coming, skipping some verses, and then he continues, now the Lord is not slow about enacting his promise. Now his promise is to return. He's not slow how some people want to characterize it. He's patient and he's merciful to you, not wanting anyone to be destroyed, but wanting everyone to turn away from following his own path and turn toward God's. The day of the Lord will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night, and on that day the sky will vanish with a roar, the elements will melt with intense heat, and the earth and all the works done on it will be seen as they truly are. Knowing that one day all this will come to pass, think what sort of people you ought to be, how you should be living lives of holy conduct and godliness, waiting hopefully for and earnestly desiring your translation might say you're hastening or you're hastening toward, the coming of God's day when the heavens will vanish in flames and the elements will melt away with intense heat. What will happen next and what we hope for is what God promised, a new heaven and a new earth where justice or righteousness reigns. So Peter's clear here. There is a day coming when the world's gonna wrap up. History as we know it is over. And it's going to end in fire. And the way this translation phrases is that all the works done on it will be seen as they truly are. So as I was reading some different commentaries and translations on this particular passage this week, it became clear there's some controversy about how to best understand these words. If you look at different translations, you'll see them phrased this way. The earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Everything done in it will be laid bare. The earth and its works will be burned up. They'll vanish. They'll be discovered. So there seems to be this back and forth between, is Peter talking about language of a very physical kind of destruction of all the material things in the world, or is this kind of a refining and purifying fire? Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 13, every man's work shall be manifest, for the day shall declare it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. 
So that just kind of adds to the different ways to think about this. Is it literal? Is it spiritual? Is it both? I see no reason why it's not both, that as history wraps up, there's something about the way God ends it all, that it not only ends the world as we know it, but it also is a fire that is a revealing or refining thing that the Bible talks about a lot. So this this ending is going to obliterate things or it's going to refine things. Maybe it does a little bit of both. If anything remains, it's just going to be those things that survive the fire of God's glory. And what's on the other side of that is a rebuilding then, this new heaven and this new earth where injustice and unrighteousness are gone. I like the phrase I've heard often, all that's bad will be undone. Therefore, says Peter, speculate on the timing. No. Argue about what kind of fire it is. No. Split churches over end times, timelines. No. Prepare for the apocalypse and build a fortress. No. In light of this, knowing that one day all this will come to pass, think about what sort of people you ought to be. How you should be living lives of holy conduct and godliness. So, three key words here. Holy. It's a word that in the New Testament, every time it's used as a noun, refers to the temple. Here it's used as an adjective, describing at least the conduct and perhaps the conduct and the godliness. So think of this word describing us with this in mind, the end of the world, the rebuilding, the new heaven and new earth that we hope for, all these things. With this in mind, number one, be holy, be temples. Remember that you are temples of God. And the way some commentaries describe it is that we're places that are sacred to God and they're not to be profaned. So remember, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a temple, you are holy. You are a sacred space in the world. And it's not that God isn't everywhere else. It's not that he's not everywhere present. I was trying to think of analogies this week, and I'm not sure that I came up with any good ones to kind of describe this. I was thinking of like, are we Wi-Fi hotspots for God? That doesn't quite work. Uh, I, I don't know. The analogy is hard, but there's something about us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit, both as individuals and then as the church, not the building, but the people. There's an indwelling factor there. This is the first thing to remember. Knowing one day this will come to pass, Think about what sort of people you ought to be. You should be holy. Remember that you are temples. And then conduct is a word that's outward behavior, as you might expect. But the word literally, it talks about a change as drastic as going from up to down. When we talk about repentance, we sometimes talk about how repentance is changing directions. If I'm heading this way in sin... And I say to God and to those I have wronged, I'm sorry and I'm repenting. I don't continue this way. I, repenting means I turn around and head this other direction. I'm going to reject that which I was doing that was breaking God's law and bringing harm to the world. This is the idea of conduct. Uh, be with, with the end of the world coming, think about what kind of people you ought to be. Live lives of holy conduct. Change directions. Go in the path of Christ. Godliness, then, is, the, is inner reverence. So if the first word was about kind of outward actions, the second word is about the condition of our heart, condition of our soul. 
So it's not just that we're doing works out there and maybe people could see them and be really impressed, that there's something about the entirety of our lives. This is an inner reverence for what God has called sacred and what God has said worthy of veneration. In other words, if God says something is sacred, we agree. That's how we view the world too. If God says, be respectful, venerate a particular thing, we agree, that too is our goal. So there's this unity in these three words, this unity of an inward reverence, an outward change of direction from walking towards sin and walking after Christ, and then it's all encapsulated in this temple, this place where God dwells, this sacred space here on the earth. And I wonder if it's in that scenario that we get glimpses of the coming new heaven and new earth where, once again, your translations may differ, where justice or righteousness reigns. So here's how Strong's Concordance describes this justice or righteousness. It's divine approval. It's what's deemed right by the Lord after his examination. It's what, what is approved in his eyes. So new heaven and new earth, perfect scenario. What we experience in the world to come is the ideal existence in which everything that God sees, he approves of. And, and I wonder if Peter is giving us a hint here, if we live lives of holy conduct and godliness, is this maybe how we catch glimpses of this? And as I go through the rest of this this morning, I want you to think of it in that sense. What if this is an opportunity where we point toward the world to come. We can't do it perfectly. We can't do it perfectly. But we have an opportunity to create an oasis. We point, it reminds us. It's the thing that also helps to give us hope because we see, whether it's in our families or our churches or different relationships we have, we see that what God has given to us on how to live well is for our good, and because we see it so clearly, it also is for his glory. We recognize our creator knows what he's talking about. We recognize that God is for us. And so I think Peter is hinting here at a way in which we can, whether it's hasten or point toward, once again, different translations will use different words, toward that coming day, we'll, we'll recognize it. It's this echo of what is to come. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit more this morning. As we've been going through 2 Peter, we've had a number of images that have come up that he has used to talk about uh, the value of people in general and then the importance of what it means to follow Jesus. The first is that we're image bearers. There's an interesting command in the Old Testament, one of the Ten Commandments, where God says, don't make any images of me. There's a number of reasons for this, but I... I tend to think that the most important reason is because God has already made his image in the world, and that's humanity. We're the one thing in his creation that bears his image. So if you wonder, what does God look like, not in a literal sense, uh, what does God look like in the sense that this is how he chose to image himself in the world, Jesus is the ultimate example. But Jesus was human. Genesis is clear. Humanity bears the image of God. Secondly, we've talked about living as doulos, or servants of God. So we remember that while the Bible uses many analogies to describe our relationship to God, one is that he is king. We have to remember that as king, if he is king, we're servants. 
And that ought to order our lives. We're not in a democracy in the kingdom of God. We're in a monarchy where Jesus is king. And what the king says goes. And if we enter that kingdom, our primary responsibility is to ask, what does the king desire? What is the heart of the king? How does the king view this situation? Third, we live as children of God. In fact, Peter talked about this king then draws you into his family. So it's not just that you're a servant. You can't forget that he's king. But this is a king that actually wants you as his child. And with that comes the the rights, the privileges, and the responsibilities of being the child of the king. And then finally, we live as temples of God, where this sacred space, where the spirit of God dwells. And I think the implications to follow from this are significant. So I talked about this in Costa Rica as part of our teaching. And as a way to kind of understand how this matters, I I split our response into two categories. And that is, we can be stewards or we can be blasphemers. Let me explain what I mean by those two things. Stewardship, I think you could think of in a number of ways. One, good stewards help everything flourish as God's design intends. Go back to Genesis Adam and Eve's role in the garden was to take what God had created and called good and help it to flourish. So that's one thing we do. As stewards, we look around the world, we ask ourselves, how has God designed this aspect of life, and we help to bring it about. Second, as stewards, we have to return what's been given to us by God in better shape than we got it. So for example, I think God has given me Vincent. I have a responsibility. Someday I'll stand before God, and God will say, what have you done with this child I gave you? Did you steward this child well? God has blessed me by giving me my wife. Someday, I believe I'll give an answer to God for how I have stewarded my wife. Is she better off for having been with you? Or is she worse off for having been with you? And then finally, the third part of stewardship is giving proper reverence to that which is sacred. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, even the jars in the temple were sacred. If you read in Daniel, part of what got the Babylonian kings in trouble was they pulled jars out of the temple and just used them for a feast, and it was blasphemy. It was, it was desecration. If God sets a thing aside and declares it sacred, we should treat it with proper reverence. More on that in a little bit. But then we can also be blasphemers. And and I'm thankful to uh, Tremper Longman. While I was in Costa Rica, I was reading a commentary he wrote on the book of Daniel. It kind of opened my eyes to thinking about what blasphemy looks like. I'll be honest, it was a little unsettling. Here's one way. It's a misuse or a mockery of God's design for the world. So if we know how God intends for something to be used or treated, and we don't do it that way, uh, I think it's a form of blasphemy. We can desecrate or we can vandalize things which are holy. We'll often think of like graffiti or spray paint that we see on something. What does it look like if we go through our life and we're spraying graffiti on holy or sacred things? We'll make this practical in a little bit, but stick with me for the definitions for now. And then finally, a disdain for what God has made sacred. And now I want to note something very important. I think Genesis 1, among other things, is meant to be read as 
God building a temple that he moves into on the seventh day. And the rest that's described in Genesis 7, and most commentators will tell you this, it's not a lounging kind of rest. It is a high priest and perhaps even a high king moving into this creation now that is his temple, his kingdom, and he takes up his rulership over something that is good. So we see in a very broad sense, the earth is the Lord's. The Old Testament narrowed the focus, like Garden of Eden is a sacred space. The tabernacle is a sacred space. The temple, by the time you get to the New Testament, though, you hear, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So as I look at all of what the Bible has to say, it seems to me that at some point, everything in creation is part of God's kingdom, part of the space that God created to be sacred. He's the high priest and he's the king of kings over everything. So we are called to treat with respect all of the things that are in God's temple or all of the things that are in God's kingdom. We don't worship them, but we, we treat them with reverential service. I think that's stewardship. We treat them with reverential service. We don't abuse them. We don't desecrate them. So I guess part of my argument this morning is that I think we can be stewards or blasphemers of everything in God's creation. And by that, I mean we honor the design and purpose that God put in it. We take care of what's been given to us. And now, if you would all just look around the room just briefly, you don't have to say anything to anybody. You're in this room. God has moved these people into your life. You're a steward. They're your steward. This is your family. This is your friends. This is the people you work with. This is your circle of influence. This is your house and your car and your time and your money. All of these things we're called to steward. We're called to use them in the design and the purpose that God has for them. When we don't, we move from stewardship to blasphemy. We're insulting the God who gave us these things. So, yeah, I think this has implications for all of us. And one thing that unsettled me last week as I was reading through that book was this idea that perhaps I am a blasphemer. It's a word we often only associate with what the Bible calls the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We can get into that in Message Plus. That's almost, almost the only time I hear it used in Christian circles, but I'm not sure that's fair. That's highlighting a particular kind of blasphemy. And it's one in which, well, no, I don't want to get into it here. That's for Message Plus if you've got questions. But I, it got me to thinking, when I roll out of bed in the morning, I'm either a steward or a blasphemer of everything that comes into my path that day. I either honor God with everything that he puts into my circle of influence, or I insult him. I push him away. I say, no, thank you. I'm not interested in your opinion on this issue. I'm not interested in your opinion on this thing in my life. I don't really care how you designed the world to work. I think I'll, I'll work it my way. I mean, how is that not blasphemous? So I want to talk now very specifically about people. Because while I think there is an argument to be made that as stewards... Everything in the world ought to be of concern to us. There's only one part of the world that bears God's image, and that's people. So I would note this. 
We bear God's image. Every human being reflects God's plan to place an image of himself in the world. I think this is why Jesus said at one point, he said, when you do anything to even the least of people, that would be what the society views as the least of people. You do that to them, it's as if you did it to me. And by identifying the least, like right now, if you can think of the person that you think the least of right now, don't, don't say that out loud. Don't look at anybody. <laughs> think of the person right now that you think the least of. Like, wow, that is just a grease fire of a life. Like, they, they, we would be better off if they weren't in the world. Like, okay, Jesus is clear. Whatever you do to that person, it's as if you did to Jesus. You mock that person, that's like mocking Jesus. You insult that person, it's like insulting Jesus. You love that person, that's like loving Jesus. By the way, that doesn't matter if that's a person that you literally rub shoulders with. Any, any of you have politicians come to mind? Yeah, right. That, yeah, what we post about the least of them, it's as if we post about Jesus. I was convicted this week. I'm trying to help you join in with me. <laughs> Whatever you do the least of these is if you've done it to me because we're the image bearers. That was God's plan. People will bear his image. If you spray graffiti on a work of art, you insult the artist. If you leave all your trash on the ground in Yellowstone Park, you spoil the beauty of what God has made. But if you deface or spoil a human being who bears the image of God, and then as Christians, we're identified as temples. We're, we're a sacred space. The Holy Spirit has taken up indwelling in us. So now when we interact as Christians, the stakes are even higher. Now it's beyond the image of God, which is sobering enough. Now it's temple of God. So when I interact with other Christians, it is one temple to another. And the Bible has a lot to say about the value of temples. That's why we can't deface or vandalize other human beings. It was interesting when I was talking about uh, blasphemy in Costa Rica. We were having some translation problems. So I'm like, this is defacing the temple. Uh, we went around and around. Finally, we settled on vandalize. That one actually translated fairly well. We don't vandalize temples. And if we're temples, we dare not vandalize each other. And I think this matters for two key reasons. The first... This addresses core issues of identity and self-worth. What I mean by this is, if you are a human being, everybody nod, you are stamped with the image of God. God's plan was to have you represent him on earth in some fashion as an image bearer. That's amazing. That's amazing. However you're feeling right now about your life or your worth, or your ability to bring something meaningful to a group, 
or your, your loneliness or depression or addiction or anxiety, I don't know what it is, but keep something in mind, please. You bear the image of God. Don't vandalize it. Steward it. Steward it. But the second thing is, if you're a follower of Jesus, uh, you're a sacred space. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. So once again, don't desecrate it. And I was trying to think of an alternative word, maybe decorate it. When you read in the Old Testament about how they decorated the temple, they didn't do it with common stuff. It was gold, not dirt. Or what does it look like, I wonder, to decorate our temples? And by that, I don't mean outwardly. I simply mean in terms of character and integrity and uh, habits and different things we're doing so that this temple that we are becomes adorned with beautiful things. Not by the world's standards, but by God's standards. So, so that's the first part of this. As image bearers and temples, please know your worth is eternal. Your value is vast. Please know this, that however you are feeling, God has granted you value and a worth and dignity. And I wonder if this is helpful for thinking about how we love our neighbors as ourselves. If that's true about ourselves, and that because of those realities, we ought to treat ourselves a particular way, we ought not vandalize this temple. We ought not spoil this image. Now we have implications for the people around us. All right, so if you interact with other human beings, remember that God has stamped his image on them. We, we dare not vandalize them with our words, with our eyes, with our attitudes. Right? We dare not vandalize. We're called a steward. Whatever I do to them, it's just I've done it to God. I'm trying to envision what it would look like if we could somehow have spray paint cans that were spiritual, not physical. I'm working on it. Whereas we walk up and interact with people, we could see some type of visualization of how it's going. Are we actually beginning to adorn them and decorate them with things that are making them and their life more beautiful? Or as we are interacting with them, is there this... Is there this defacing of them? Is this their chipping away of them? If you rub shoulders with Christians, remember you're engaging with a sacred space. This is temple to temple. Would I walk into a temple and just insult the maker of it? I don't think I would. When we walk together, temple to temple, oh, we have to be careful. I think God takes this pretty seriously. That's my image. That is a sacred space to me. What did you just say? Or, oh, that's my image in my sacred space. Thank you for decorating that as a temple deserves. Um, Sheila, I need to, you to join me up here for a second. I lied yesterday. 
You can ask me about that later. It was an acceptable life. All right, so today is our 29th anniversary. So I, I want to sh show you how I think this is intended to work, practically speaking. I'm just going to do this with Sheila. I'm not isolating this to married couples. This is parents and children, friends, people you work with. But here's the thing that I've been thinking about a lot this week. Okay, number one, you bear the image of God. And if we get 29 more years, which is what I'm planning on, what are the things I have to remember better than I did the first 29? Is that you bear the image of God. And I dare not say or do anything that mars that image. God has called me to steward you. And I'll say it here in front of everybody. It's a sacred calling. And God forbid that I do not take that seriously. But you're also a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I dare not, with my words, my eyes, my attitudes, my actions, I can't defile the temple of God. Right? I wish that would have been in our first vows, just to order my thoughts and order our thoughts. Okay, thank you. I just wanted you to come up here for a second so I could hug you. Nobody else gets this kind of hug. Okay. All right, husbands and wives, can you do me a favor? Pick up notes or if they're out or you don't have them, we'll put it online soon. I would love for you to sometime this week sit down and have a conversation with your spouse and ask them, how am I doing treating you as an image bearer of God, as a temple of God? Am I decorating you? By the way, we can have this conversation if we need to. Um, am I decorating you? Or, or am I vandalizing you? I'm dead serious about this. Parents, ask your kids. Hmm? Kids, ask your parents. You're going out for lunch with us today, Vince, so this is a good opportunity. Ask your friends. Ask a sibling. One of the things I talked about with the students in Costa Rica was if we simply take Bible knowledge and stick it in our heads, it's not going to change our lives. It's got to seep into our lives, down into our hearts, and holy conduct, it's got to affect how we live. You don't have to report back to me about this, but I'm begging you, please. With the people close to you this week, would you honestly ask them or, or, or say to them and pray that God helps us to be an honest request, I want to steward you better than I have been stewarding you. Um, can all of us improve? Yeah, okay. I want to steward you better than I've been stewarding you. What does that look like? It could be, I fear that I may have vandalized you. Have you experienced that for me? And if so, I need to know what that is so I can repent and ask your forgiveness and I can turn around and go about stewarding you. 
And one reason I encourage everybody to do this because I think it's important it goes both ways. Um, we need to be stewarded. We need to steward. Peter says, once again, this is me reading between some lines here, all right? I, I just suspect that kind of living is supposed to point toward a new heaven, a new earth, where everything meets God's approval. Can, can you envision a life together in a community of people where everyone practices that? Holy conduct and godliness. Where everybody practices, I'm talking with image bearers, I'm thinking about image bearers, I'm about to say words to a temple. Oh man, it's a glimpse of heaven. That is a glimpse of a world in which God says, oh, well done. That is what it looks like when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And, and Peter says, this new heaven and new earth, that's what we hope for. The ultimate redemption that Christ brings. But I think we have the opportunity now to point toward that. And if, if that's not a compelling experience of what Jesus offers to the world, a transformation not just of hearts but of hands, an expression of God's heart for the world, uh, that's gospel, y'all. That's a witness that's hard to look away from and that is compelling. This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.